Bye Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on today's episode, Jacob Johnston, one of the few uh, denizens of Evansville, someone who lived, maybe not was born here, but lived here at some people's life who have actually gone on to direct a feature, our bigger budget feature film. Um, he's also spent a gr- giant period of his uh, early career working at Marvel Studios doing designs, and we'll get to that talk later, but first up, what I watched this week, so... Most cinephiles have like a giant list of um, movies that they know are going to be um, uh, a task, or um, that they, 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 it's, it's, they'll be rewarding if you engage with them. But um, they're like, you know, the epic, like, uh, you know, Warhol nine hour documentary or something like that, or just usually they're the longer ones. And um, um, especially. Um, if a movie's trying to not be familiar and normal and trying to swing for the home runs, they they get divisive pretty quickly. So you'll have someone love it and another person completely unengaged not like it. I mean, that, that just tends to be for the more ambitious films. And um, like half of the twenty uh, best of 2010 lists I saw, like you go through and I just click off. I'd be like, love, like hate, 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 love, hate, 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 hate. Like you're not going to click in with all of them. And um one film that's been writing heavily on my list, I maybe had a chance to see it theatrically in, uh, when I lived in L.A. at CineFamily. I can't remember if I played one show or not, but it's this uh, Russian film called Hard to Be a God. Now, um, Alex Ross Perry called this movie the best movie of the decade, and he said it's without competition. And um, it's, um, you know, it had the marks of, it had this vibe of being a, uh, a another unmade unseen Tarkovsky film because three hours black and white Russian um it's written by the Strugovsky brothers they wrote this book called Roadside Picnic which was later adapted into uh, by Tarkovsky into Stalker and so um I there's so I, I get into basically expecting uh this Tarkovsky movie and it ends up being more kind of like um Chimes at Midnight where it's uh period uh black and white high contrast wide angle lenses over lines i'm dubbing the uh director uh Alexei german um shot over three years i believe and uh died before it was completed and as i want to say his family ended up uh completing most of it and it's um it's a premise for the times like currently for the times it's about um this other world that is almost exactly like Earth, only 800 years behind, and it never had a renaissance. And any intellectuals that come up, typically the leading band of people are, are try to kill the intellectuals. And so, and it's, I go in thinking, you know, I that quote that I can't, I don't know who actually said it, but it's, uh, when it comes to literature, that a good book teaches you how to read it, something like a, you know, Moby Dick or Gravity's Rainbow or The Recognitions. And, um, you know, a movie has to, the vocabulary of a movie works that it has to engage you on its details. That's why most filmmakers tend to go for the familiar and go for stars and things like that or familiar faces because they know you're going to keep track of the characters. When you're editing, you want those details early on because if you just spend most of your time as a viewer not knowing who's what, you're gone. And it's sad because you, like, I know this movie's good. I know this movie's amazing, and it's clearly an achievement. But um, I made sure to set aside three hours to sit down and watch it. But because I didn't have the benefit of a theatrical setting, I didn't last 30 minutes. I 
uh, before I paused it. I finished the movie, but I paused it to like check my email and you know the, the distract like normal distractions of modern life and um you know there, there there's so many details like the movie clearly got right like it's it's this onslaught of um of i keep i kept thinking the whole time watching it that um someone said monty python the holy girl was the most accurate medieval movie just because it was filled with shit and uh the grotesque is clearly what this movie is pushing on to you but i mean i'm watching this i don't know i, I vaguely recognize one character um maybe a second one 45 minutes in but i'm just trying to let this movie wash over me but it's it's not the movie's fault it's me being distracted or just not picking up on the right details i believe this movie you know is made sure to get those details clear in the first place but this movie just started washing over me and then like we've all been in this period experience where a movie starts to become a chore to get through especially a three-hour movie and it's you know there's there's a lot of things going on obviously like um you know one of the reasons like i'd like to think that many viewers don't engage with uh foreign language films as much is that vaguely xenophobic thing of uh you know, another language that it takes a little extra work to pick up on that. But then there's also subtitles, which beyond the extra brain power um, that you have to do the reading, it, it, it ruins the frame because you're going through the bottom third and you, you're gradually making a hot medium cooler when you're watching it. So, um, like, it got to the point where the central premise, I mistook the central premise of the, uh, of the form of the movie where um, characters keep looking at camera and um I, I don't the plot is um basically the, the the you know the 30 scientists that are um in this planet they're observing this planet and they're from earth and the characters on screen just keep looking at camera so I, I spend the entire movie thinking that we as viewers are supposed to be the first person viewing as of god and all these citizens are talking to us as gods, kind of admiring us, and um, but also being detached from us, and that's not what was um, that's not what was happening. And it's just this: if there's a central theme to this show emerging besides the idea that the movies we love mer or tend to hit us when we're teenagers, it's that smartphones are, if not entirely ruining the theatrical, ruining everything they're changing what we typically knew as films and they're hurting attention spans so hopefully what can happen in the future is uh, i'll be able to check out a screening of it and because in particular i think um uh stalker tarkovsky stalker uh i saw about a year or two ago for my second viewing and not only did i love it way more than my initial viewing um it went by fast so hopefully like I know when I'm uh, helping friends out with uh, giving them notes on cuts, I always try to watch the movie twice. And the first one is the uh, uh, what happens next viewing where I just need to know the plot. And um, the second viewing is where you just can appreciate when you, uh, you know where it's going. So hopefully I run into a theatrical uh, screening of Hard to Be a God sometime soon. Jacob Johnston is on the show today, and uh, I came across Tim because on Facebook, actually, uh, 
I've been um, over for the show and for just in general reasons, been trying to compile a list of uh, feature directors who are from Evansville. Now, the criteria starts to get tricky because there's not a lot that are actually from Evansville. And then and I've, I've uh, compared notes with a, a few of the people, some of uh, some former guests like uh, Ted Haycraft and uh, Matt Ullman, uh, Eric Braysmith. And um, so the most notable director from Evansville was not born here, but he graduated from Central High School where I graduated would be Bud Bedecker. He's probably the most notable director, and he, he grew up in Evansville. Um, and the other big notable one would be Matt Williams. Matt Williams created, uh, co-created Roseanne and Home Improvement, and he directed, from what I could tell, two features. I know I've seen the first one, Where the Heart Is, but he did one later called Walker Payne that I haven't heard about. Then there was someone else I found um, through a friend who's not from Evansville but knew me talking about Evansville. Uh, his name is Russell Harbaugh. He directed a movie called Love After Love with uh, Andy McDowell. Um, I'm hoping to get him on the show eventually. Um, and then there's um, a man, I don't know if he's from Evansville, but his name is Patrick O'Connor. He directed a movie called Sacred Hearts. He was a screenwriter who won the Spielberg Fellowship, and he uh, worked out of Evansville for a long time. He no, he no longer lives here. Then we got some locals. We have people like the very first guest of this show, Kevin Chenault. Um, we have these people who I only know made features through Facebook, basically, because uh, I went to school with them. I went to um, uh, high school with a guy named Jacob Belinsky and elementary school with a guy named Doug Sharp, and I found out a few years later they made their own. Um, I haven't seen them. Um, also, notably in this, my research through this, I found out that... Um, the screenwriter from East to Eden, and uh, he did one or two other Ilya Kazan movies, is from Evansville, but he was raised in Michigan. And you can hear from this that there's a slippery slope of criteria here. Like, people, as you go, is someone who just stepped foot in Evansville count? Do they have to live a period of time here? Do they have to be from here? Do they have to be raised here? I mean, the point for me is, as Jacob and I talk later, is this idea that uh, small towns can be pretty imprisoning and make you feel like you can't get out or do art on your own. And we need these models to know that you will get out and you will make one, make a movie down the line if you want to. Uh, he has this great story about his guidance counselor telling him tip your expectations. Um, he's uh, directed his first feature called Dreamcatcher. Uh, he's directed a slew of music videos and shorts. Uh, Dreamcatcher is supposed to have its LA premiere later this month and just sold internationally at Berlin. Um, and he's about to jump into his ne next. But what I vaguely knew going into the conversation but didn't know the depths of and was a really pleasant surprise is that Jacob worked uh, very extensively in the design department at Marvel, uh, Marvel Studios. And um, here's the thing. Serious filmgoers have to hold their nose up against Marvel. And I unabashedly love Marvel movies. Um, and a big chunk of that is because I am a pretty much lifelong Wednesday uh, comic reader, going back to the day when uh, they used to come out on Thursdays even. Um, and so whenever people start complaining about superheroes taking over um, movies right now, I'm in this weird position where I just genuinely think Marvel's making some amazing movies and doing some really interesting narrative work right now, but I wholeheartedly sympathize just because as a comic book fan, especially in my teens when I was much better about reading actually interesting comics, you knew that um, 
superheroes are a freaking virus. They, um, like, they take over every medium. They do. They do. They, um, they, they bring out a lot of toxic masculinity. I mean, they're all about the male power fantasy, at least in the comic form. It's weird just because I think a lot of the arguments, we, we later in the conversation with Jacob, we go a little bit into the Scorsese thing at my behest. Um, but I, I find that a lot of people are confusing Marvel with four quadrant stuff. The, um, the lowest common denominator stuff the studios are trying to get across. And, um, there's, I mean, superheroes, they can suck. They just, they, they bring across a very violent two dimensional morality, good guys versus bad guys. Um, they have, um, the immaturity of young adult, uh, fiction i find um but what i love about marvel and i think is a little unappreciated is just the level of serialization at this high spectacle level and um it's it's just these things are epic and they're the they're told in collaborative methods and that part you know especially with the scorsese thing goes against your typical auteurs thing, which I counter-argue is just means these are producer-based films. And then in the period of peak TV, um, when TV's being more sophisticated and adults than most movies, you, that means that, that producing-based stuff is just as viable, uh, if not currently working more than the auteur theory is. Um, then there's these things with Marvel movies where especially now they've, you know, Endgame was my one of my favorite movies last year. And it basically came down to, I just kept telling people, like, look, apparently it's very satisfying to pay off 22 movies. And the, the, they're doing narrative experiments writ large now. Um, not crazy experimental, obviously, although some of the stuff in Doctor Strange in 3D was awesome. But it's, it's not getting its due just because, like, critics can't write about, you know, uh, a white dude director being the genius behind everything, so... Um, anyway, it was really nice, like, to talk to someone who's versed and been there day to day and behind the scenes with Jacob, um, on top of the fact it sounds like he's a promising filmmaker, so hope you enjoy. Where are you at? Uh, I'm in my living room okay. on the floor. Okay, where, um, where in, are you in L.A.? Yeah, yeah, I just moved like three weeks ago. Um, none of this is going to probably make any sense, but I I live like a mile up the street and then I moved. Um, I actually live at the base of the Hollywood sign, like not the literal base, but if I go on my balcony, I can like go up and, and see it on the hill. It's so pretty you, cool. So you're kind of just um, uh, Los Feliz? I was in Los Feliz, yeah. Okay. Uh I was in Las Feliz right by Griffith Park, and then I came down. Um, it's it's East Hollywood in a place called um, Beachwood Canyon. Okay, okay. I will. Like my last stay in LA when I was uh, working was uh, right by Griffith Park. Like I had a friend okay. that had this really cool house there, and um, we were editing a movie or the movie he's working on or he was directing. I was editing out of his house. It was really cool. Um, what was the movie? It's called Inheritance. I just remember. Okay. The, I just remember the walk up there was just glorious. Like it's just, mm-hmm. I, and I, and whenever we pause on Apple TV, I'd be like, I think I could see the house there. Maybe whenever the uh, that one LA plate comes up. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you are you are from Evansville. I'm actually, I'm actually from Oklahoma, uh, but I only lived there until I was five, 
Um, we moved around quite a bit growing up, but I always just say I'm from Kentucky. I'm, I'm from Henderson, uh, but I lived, you know, 10 minutes from Evansville. So my first jobs, uh, because Henderson just didn't have um, a lot of great opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first job was at Cold Stone um, over by uh, the Target in Evansville. And I don't even still there. And then I left to go work at Best Buy um, uh, right by... I don't know that shopping thing where it's like there's the, the intersection where there's all the stores. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I, I eventually went and worked at Showplace East where I was at for many years, um, uh, which was an amazing thing before I came out here. Did you say, so you said um, it was like 2003 to 2006. Yeah. I, I uh, yes, maybe even, I think I was there in 2007 to, it might've been 2004 to 2007. Um, and then I actually, my first semester of college, I went to Murray state, um, before I transferred out to Chapman out here in LA or uh, in Orange County. Um, uh, and I came back during the holidays, like Showplace was great about letting you come back for like summer break or winter break and work for two weeks. They need the fresh bodies. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was the same crew and I just, we had become kind of like a little bit of a family. Um, uh, it was like a coming of age story in itself, just all these people. And what was great was I was the one kid from Henderson and everybody else was in some Evansville high school. So they had their own drama and lives. And I was just kind of this, you know, outlier guy. Um, it was cool. It was, it was a really cool opportunity. When did you work there? Uh, well, I was like, uh, 97 to like, t- uh, 2005 and I had a, I had a, like two gaps in there, but, um, see, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, uh, I was pretty sure I would have been at North when you, it would have been at East, but I had been at East for a long time. I was at East until like 2002, I want to say 99 to 2002. Okay. Yeah. I, the, yeah. Then uh, were you like in projection or were you, what were you? Projection. So when who was the projections? Ben, maybe. Ben ben, and, ben Ben came over from North, and but he and I worked. Uh, it was after he went to North was when I started back at North. So okay, yeah, and Raj and Katie and uh, and just well, Katie was more East, but Raj was mainly at North. I remember Katie. Okay. Um, she uh, um she uh I don't I don't think she um works there anymore, but she was uh, doing the Henderson Theater for a while. Okay, that was the thing. I was so bummed that when I was at East, all through high school, there were murmurs that that was going to get built. There was going to be this this show place in Henderson, and everybody was like, yeah, and then never happened, never happened. And then I leave, and like four years later, it gets built, and it's so nice. I I still haven't been. Oh, really? Oh, it's it's pretty nice. I mean, I only went once. I think I saw Tron Legacy there when I came back for a vacation once, but... Um, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. Okay. Let's, let's rewind back. So, um, you were, you were born in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, um, do you, were your parents into movies? Uh, not really. You know, my dad, cause he was in the military was, um, in this movie called tank with James Gardner, Jar- Gardner, 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 um, and, uh, there's like one shot of, you know, they're doing this like cadence where they're all standing there and like the camera's on my dad in a medium shot. And we always used to joke about it growing up, but, um, was he like a feature extra or like, uh, I think it was just because he was in that, uh, battalion of soldiers and they were shooting on an actual military base. And this was like probably 81 or 82. 
you know, they didn't have all the rules and sanctions for actors and extras and shit. So it was probably like, well, they're here. Film them. I'm trying to um, think of Tank is one of those movies that has uh, um, is a, has a period after. It's an acronym or like it has a period after the T-A-N-K. It, no, it's it's literally just called Tank. Oh. Like lowercase A-N-K. Oh, um, and I don't know if it was always in the like $3 DVD bin at Walmart. Um, but but my my dad was not so much into film. Um, my mom was was more of the art art reading and, and we did um uh she was really big into like horror and, and kind of weird stuff but i wasn't really allowed to watch any of that stuff when i was younger um but but later on in life like one of her favorite movies is the rocky horror picture show uh so you know i was exposed to some really art house weird stuff probably when i was i guess maybe when i was like 11 did you ish. did you do rocky horror um any of the midnight stuff I, when I was in college, I was in uh, Rocky Horror my sophomore year. I played Rocky, and my junior year, we did a gender switch, and I played Janet. Damn it, um, Janet. And it was, it was actually a lot of fun. It was, you know, it was kind of stepping outside my comfort zone in certain ways, but it was really interesting. Um, and because I had grown up, you know, being uh, inundated with that, with that film, it was kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay. Do you did you um do you remember seeing a movie in Oklahoma? I don't. I think I left there when I was five. Um, so I don't really. the The first real movie I remember seeing in theaters um, was Jurassic Park in '93. Well, I guess I was five. Okay. Uh, and and I left feeling like I had had this experience. I don't know. Like I I had always loved dinosaurs. Um, and obviously I'm five and I don't understand any of what the movie is really about, but I, I just felt so enthralled. I, I don't know. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's an experience that I can't really uh, put into words, but um, it to this day is the movie that, that inspired me. Do you um, remember who, um, who you saw it with or where you saw it? I saw it with, with my mom and dad and brother um, in Tennessee. I believe we had just moved to Tennessee Uh and I remember when it came out on, on video, I begged my mom. I was like, I will do all these chores. Like I, and so for like three months, I had to do all the laundry, like fold laundry and do dishes because she bought me the VHS and I wore that thing out. Um, but yeah, it was, it was that in, uh, in, in oddly enough, Titanic, I remember seeing a lot in theaters. And I think it was just in 97 when it came out, it was really the biggest spectacle of anything I'd ever experienced. Titanic was uh, um, was what was starting when I first started there, and that's what made like my, my, my first few months at Showplace so magical because I was just like I can watch thirty five millimeter movies on my break, and it was and you really I really fell in love with that idea of coming in the middle of a movie you could appreciate sequences like way before yeah. anyone else is going to get get to them. You could like you kept seeing good parts in mediocre movies that otherwise you wouldn't be you wouldn't want to pay to see especially if they were getting bad reviews but you, you know that there's like there's actually a good sequence in here absolutely yeah. and you yeah it's one of those movies where you can kind of come in and that's how i feel about jurassic park you can kind of come in whenever you want and be like ah it's this scene i love this moment um and then you know but but uh yeah so you know but i didn't really get exposed into other kinds of movies until I was more middle school, high school um, that at least I can remember feeling moved by. But I knew from, from the time I was in the second grade, 
that I wanted to go into filmmaking or like film in some capacity. You did, and that was you knew before you were kind of like there were specific influences on you or things that you were like. Yeah, like it was, and I didn't even to be perfectly honest. Like in retrospect, I didn't know anything about filmmaking. Like you didn't know about cameras and but when I left uh, type, this is just a memory. That, but like Titanic. I came to my second grade class like the next day and I was like, all right, so we're going to make the sequel to Titanic. And like for the next probably three or four weeks, we would have like rehearsals on our, our recess was having rehearsals of this movie that we were, again, it was really just playing make believe, but under, in my head, it was, no, we're going to make this movie. And then in the third grade, it was a computer game called time commando. Um, which it was like the the very dawn of like 3D games. Um, I mean, we're talking like the polygons of the hand was like a beige square. Like this it, horrible graphics and it glitched and it was terrible. But I was obsessed. And it was like this guy who worked at a tech company who gets sent back in time by a virus that's destroying time. And so you have to kind of play through major like the primal age and World War II and but I was like, guys, we got to make this into a movie. Like, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And in fourth grade, it was Final Fantasy and Pokemon. And, like, it, every year it just became, like, what is the new thing that I'm excited about? And the way I translated that was, you know, let's play it and rehearse it and, and let's make it a movie. Um, Did you do any, just, like, it, filmmaking uh, as, a, like, video uh, VHS stuff? Or I don't know if many DV would have been your a little more. Not until I was older, <clears throat> we didn't have a whole lot of money, so it wasn't like I, we didn't even have one of the, like the big camcorders when that was a thing when you would record on like uh, the VHS tapes. I had my uh, my dad bought me my first video camera, I think, when I was in the seventh grade, and it was a mini DV tape, um, and. I wore that thing. I mean, like action figure movies and just like every, anything I could do to just be like, let's, it's, it's gotta be, you know, and I liked action figures because it allowed me to do things that like you couldn't do with people. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I probably have a good 56,000. That's hyperbole, but like that, I have so many tapes of just like shit movies <laughs> that, uh, from seventh grade all the way through 12th. What was it that you, I mean, made you so certain about filmmaking so early on? It, it was just, I think it was, it was that feeling. I mean, I get, I, I'm going to reference that because it's poetic and what makes sense to me, but that feeling that I had leaving Jurassic Park, um, I wanted to emulate that. I wanted to, I wanted to tell stories. Um, I've always been fascinated by, by imagination and, and ingenuity and just kind of creativity. Um, and, and filmmaking was, I felt one of the easiest conduits to release that, right? You get to collaborate with people, but also you spend a lot of time in your head conjuring up stories and characters. And, and, um, the more I learned about the craft and, and, you know, it's more technical the, the more you learn about it. But like at that baseline, it was just about creating that sensation and, and giving people the opportunity to experience, hopefully, if we do our jobs right, um, that same feeling. So um, are you a gamer? Uh, like loosely. Like I'm not I wouldn't say that I'm uh, I'm a big gamer, but um, but I've you know. I dabble. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so teen years, what were the big movies? Mm. Teen years. Well, like you said, the best thing about working at a movie theater, and that's like, I feel like, cause movies, even though they weren't super expensive, uh, when I was younger, it was all about, uh, I remember distinctly Batman and Robin loving that. <laughs> um, wow. uh, Casper, Casper, uh, Casper to this day is one of those movies I can watch whenever it's like Beetlejuice. I can just put it on and enjoy it. And, and I want to share it with people who have never seen it. Doesn't um, that have like a James Horner score to it? Uh, a Casper. It, I, I remember it has a good score. It, it's a great, I think it's James Newton Howard. Oh, okay. Um, I, I think, but, um, I, there were these puppets that pizza hut had of the four main ghosts. And, I only got like three of them. I don't think I even got Casper, but I would do these horrible puppet shows from behind the couch of, cause I love that movie so much, but um, Batman and Robin, Casper, uh, Mortal Kombat. Oh, wow. Uh, the first one. <clears throat> and I remember the, in 97, when the second one came out, uh, I was going to go to the midnight show and I was, you know, I, I don't know, I was like 11 or 12 or something. And, and I, my dad was like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to go to the midnight show. And my brother and I were all excited and they were sold out and we didn't get to see it until like Sunday. And I was devastated, but I remember seeing it and I was like, this is the best experience ever. Look at all these characters that I love. And like, you watch it now and you're like, good God. Did you, were you big? Uh, did you, I remember when I, around when those movies were coming out, I was reading a ton about uh, VFX. Were you a VFX kid or did you pay attention to that stuff? I, not honestly not really um i was always just kind of it was so experiential and i didn't really think about it honestly until until college when i started to learn more about like that side of it you know you i feel like as movies progressed you became more cognizant of sure. you know cgi uh but it was i was always just more like wow look how much it's evolved mm. you know like look what they can do in movies now that they couldn't do back then and nowadays it feels like it's a competition of like what's practical versus what's digital. And it's like, well, film's digital now. So deal with it. Uh, but, but yeah. Um, well, and it, then, is it really a competition? Cause it seems like digital has been significantly winning. I just met like practical versus CG. Like there's this, there's the ongoing discussion of people being like, well, practical puppets and all that stuff is more, is a better outlet than CGI and CGI's people rely on fixing it in post. And like, I'm sure as an editor, you have to yeah. see that too because you know you're seeing how movies are coming together, and, and in post, a lot of times the movie changes considerably. Um, but but I think this reliance that people have this self righteous being like, well, if it's not real, then it's not as good, and it's like, guys, you the best VFX are the ones that you don't even see, right? And like, the proof is always in the pudding too. Just it's more like. like because these high, like the hybrids, like the practical, then the digital hybrids are t tend to be some of the better ones. But like I, yeah. my element is always that it feels like um, people do more the push, put it, fix it in post, do more digital effects just because the producers or a studio wants more control to change their mind later. Which I don't know if that's been your experience. Uh, I, sure. That is that is a reason for things to happen. But more often than not, it's, you know, in a well-made studio movie, um, you don't have that issue, hopefully. But there's always going to be things that, if you can fix it, you might as well. 
right. you know, but, but as much money goes into fixing someone's makeup smears or, you know, enhancing their triceps than it is to create an alien army. Like the, 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 the vanity fixes on CG now is, is insane. I remember um, I was working with this one editor and he was in avid, uh, moving over a pimple from some actress's forehead. And I was just like, that's our job. We're supposed to do that. It's ex- it can get expensive and a good yeah like some editors will just paint stuff out that's super simple like that um but but i remember on avengers uh the first one there was a moment when it's like this really emotional moment where they're all gathered around the table after colson has died spoilers uh and chris evans like puts his hand on his head and the makeup was so heavy that when he did it he like smeared the entire like foundation on his head and it was the best take and so they had to track this entire shot where his hand was moving and the mate, like it, it, it became a very expensive moment, but like that kind of stuff is doable and, and you don't have to reshoot it, which can oftentimes cost a lot more. Um, and you may not even capture the same emotion. You know, it's kind of like coming in and doing it and hoping that you hit that same sweet spot. So rewinding back, you, uh, you got out to LA for uh, college is where you, where you at? Murray State? I did. I did. So I went to Marie. Um, the only school I applied for was USC uh, because, again, it was my blind stubbornness or, or headstrong will. Like, I knew that's where I was going. Was this for directing? Um, huh? Was this for directing? Yeah, I wanted to go to film school. And I mean, like, it, you always hear, like, well, that school is hard to get into. And rah, rah, rah. Like, like, no, I've got an iron will and I'm going to go. Uh, and I flew out. My dad flew me out to LA for the first time when I was a junior and I was enamored partially because like I had built it up to such a thing. Like I needed to love it. Like I had to like it because if I didn't, then like my entire life had been a ruse. And, um, so I came out and I'm like, yeah, homeless people in traffic and like, it's horrible air quality, man, this is the best experience ever. Um, I'm guessing you stayed near USC. We were, we were staying like right near downtown. Um, and again, I, I had no concept of like how it's basically a gang zone where USC is, is at. Um, but you know, it was, it was things like that. I didn't care, right. There could have been a gang war at the time I was visiting the college. I would have been like, yeah, I can't wait to come here. Um, and I didn't get in and, I, I was like devastated because it was again the only college I applied for and I found out maybe like three weeks before graduation and I was like shit I, I've got to go somewhere like that was the other thing like, college was never a question of like am I going to go it was like I'm going to go um, and you always knew film school obviously and I, and I yeah it was going to be I didn't and it wasn't really until high school that I knew that there were such things as film schools but I didn't want to go to like a trade school like the New York Film Academy or like these two year, like getting your welding license. Um, it was weird for me when I was getting out. Cause like I've, I, I don't know if I decided as early as you, but I think it was like 13 when I decided and I kept trying to convince my parents and my dad in particular was fixated on in-state and IU has like a good film library, but there's not really film school around here. Like the closest was going to be like uh, Southern Illinois, which I always kind of, um, in my head wonder what could have happened if I'd gone there. Cause it would have been at the same time Joe Swanberg was there. Um, okay. I think Western Kentucky suppose it's either Murray state or Western Kentucky had a, uh, uh, has a good film or it has some program there. Okay. But yeah, anyway, I, I would, 
Yeah, I was a theater journalism major there. It was a double major because I didn't, to me, that they may have added it, but to me, that was like the closest thing to film was like theater and journalism. I did journalism uh-huh. too, yeah, in high school and a little in college. It's it's good though because it teaches you to do stuff like this, talk to people, which mm-hmm. is three fourths of everything in LA or Hollywood in general. Um, but but yeah, so I didn't get in. Went to US. I went to Murray. They let me in. I like applied. And, like the next day, they were like, "You want to come?" Um, I got a really great scholarship, and like it's a great campus. And I'm sure if I had not convinced myself that I needed to hate it, then I probably would have just stuck it out because it was nice. A lot of my friends from high school were there. Um, super affordable and and it's a it's a great school um for all intents the people that i know that stayed there were really happy but i was not because i was making myself so unhappy because i was like i gotta get that like this isn't my dream um and and so i started looking for schools that would allow a spring transfer um which is actually really uncommon because a lot of places don't want you to transfer until you're a junior you know, they want you to get your ninth. And, and the good thing was because I had taken so many AP classes and, and stuff, I was almost a sophomore as is. Um, so after my semester at Murray, I had enough credits to be like a second semester sophomore. Uh, so wait, I, where, I, where getting did you go in L.A.? Uh, this It was a school called Chapman. Um, it was in Orange County. I had never been to Orange County. I'd never visited the campus. Um, but I read a book on the top 10 film schools in the United States and like, you know, USC and, and NYU and Emerson. And, um, but to me, like I needed to be in LA, like there were other great American university. Like there was, there was some other cool ones that were really great, but a lot of them also, you had to be a junior to transfer. Okay. And Chapman was still up and coming. Um, they had just gotten in 2007 when I applied, they had just gotten this big endowment from Marion, not, who owned a Knott's Berry farm. Her family owned the theme park. Okay. Um, and it was like an eight, eight or $9 million thing. And they had built two sound stages and it was, you know, apparently this, this really great grandiose thing. And um, they had a 35 millimeter camera. They had like, they, they had all the equipment that students were allowed to, to rent for free. Would, would 2007, 2008, when would this have been? This was 2007. I started in January of 2008. But I applied in like November of 2007. Okay. What was Chapman like when you actually got to sit down and got there? I loved it because I was like, I have to love it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and, and the experience itself was, was great. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I kind of sped once I got there again, my brain was like, okay, well now you got to graduate. Like you're close to it. But it felt like college to me was being in the dugout of a baseball game. And I was so close to like getting to go outside and, and bat, but like you still got to watch everybody else to do what you want to do. What were the um, movies you were watching in college? Uh, that's one of the best things I think about film school is, is I got to experience movies like Night of the Hunter, um, you know, this Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters movie that is to this day one of my favorite movies that informed a lot for me in terms of storytelling, visually, like cinematography. Um, we also watched like the, you know, the great train robbery and we watched battleship Potemkin and we watched citizen Kane and we watched all the like filmic, I felt, you know, the, the textbook movies that, you know, but we also watched things like in mood for love, um, which when we were talking about production design, which was beautiful. And my production design professor, uh, who just passed away recently, but, but 
um, he did Blade Runner and Back to the Future. And, you know, these, like, I learned so much from him and I, in my emphasis, I actually changed it to production design um, because there were 65 directing. And when you, when you got to like your last four semesters, you had to pick an emphasis. Um, so you could either pick editing, directing, sound design, production design, um, or cinematography. And I honestly didn't ever really care about cinematography. Like I, I hated learning about f-stops and lighting and app like it just was something that was not super interesting to me um and i didn't want to do sound uh editing was fine i just didn't like being in front of a computer that much it's incredibly boring um, but it's also it's a it's a skill set that i don't really have like i i don't see i guess i see the story in a different way and then once the editor kind of does the assembly like it it allows and my experience as I've done more has allowed me to be better at that. But like when I was in college, the idea of being like, well, do I want to be an editor? was like, I wanted something that felt kind of active, mm. um, which, you know, now in retrospect, editors make or break your movie. <laughs> uh, but so I chose production design and there were four of us. Um, and was and, it, was it just process of elimination or was there some, something that stood out in particular? I, I thought, because I loved visuals so much and I thought if I can tell a story with costumes and, and uh, set design and these small details that tell who these people within a scene are, then I can tell a story off, off a script. Um, because to me, production design was just silent storytelling. It's if I, if I put the camera in a room and panned around it, could I pick up who these people were? You know, and like to me, that was more impactful than create like it, everybody's world. I think in those in those uh, department heads are so unique. And um, I think they're all equally important. But for me, it was something that I really identified with and I, I, I understood. And again, working with Larry Paul, who who's the production design uh, mentor. And, and I also it was. I didn't want to be grouped into the 65 directors who then went to make a thesis film that some of them spent fifty, sixty thousand dollars on. Um, and the school gave you five, uh, thousand, <laughs> but you could also rent free equipment and they had a, they had all the light, like they had a gold room that had like, uh, 10 K's and five K's and, and, uh, light boxes and sliders and dollies and track. And like, you could rent a lot of the shit for free, but, people always wanted to go big. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, another thing about, about film school in general, especially for screenwriting majors is nobody was telling these kids don't write big movies because no one's going to buy them. So, you know, these screenwriting kids that had to write, well, two, you know, they're what are these shorts that they're, that these are shorts. Well, the, well, for, for, for screenwriters, you have to leave with two features or a feature and a pilot. And, they were just kind of like, write what you want. We wanted, they, Chapman really liked the idea of like Hollywood movies, okay. like big commercial, like, and you could even tell the people who made artsy, but you know, I went to college with the Duffer brothers and the Duffer brothers thesis film was a movie called Eater. And it was about a shape shifting cannibal in a police station. And I saw it and I was like, this is one of the coolest, like, this is bold, you know? And it was, it was weird and it was, kind of not really scary but like it stuck out to me um they were a year ahead of me but like uh that to me was one of the 
ones that I watched and was like, this is the kind of like, these are the kind of movies that I think people should be doing. Um, well, yeah, like, it was I, like I, a lo fi thing they were doing or because I mean, that's still pretty high. Concept. It wasn't it. It, it was it was it was way more commercial than than what I like. Stranger Things feels so nostalgic, and Eater felt nothing. Eater felt like like an eighties like Ridley Scott movie. It was very straightforward. It was like young guy has a new wife. Uh, it's his first night as a rookie cop, and they've got this guy in lockup. And then, you know, the big twist at the end was was the guy gets eaten and then is going home to his wife as the shapeshifter. Um, and <clears throat> they graduated with like a deal with Fox and they made a movie called Shelter or something that I, I was like Alexander Skarsgård and they had Colleen Atwood do the costumes. Like it was this whole big thing. And then it, it got like shelved. Like no one ever saw it. I was going to say, I don't um, think I heard about this. I, I don't even know if it came out. Maybe it did. Um, but then they went and wrote on Twin Peaks and, you know, whatever. They went on and did their, their thing that they're doing now. But uh, Chapman, and I think film school in general, maybe is, is as good as and as necessary as you need it to be to learn the things that, like, like shaping a script, sure. And learning, you know, how to... But, but like, I, I believe that people are either born storytellers or they're not. And if you weren't born with the foresight to build these stories, you can't learn to tell a good story. No one can sit down and tell you like, so these are, you know, I can give you the tools of the things that make potentially a great story. I can show you a bunch of great stories, but if you can't translate those elements into something, it's, it's like not being able to draw or people who can't dance or people who can't sing. Like, it's to me storytelling is a talent i guess i just I, i've read a lot lately that makes the point that we just all of our brains work with stories we narrativize our lives and so like uh even to a point where like you know one of the chief traits that uh when you're looking for a mate they actually use say storytelling is ability on top of just like looking desirable being able to get, you know, gain money or looking attractive like storytelling was actually a factor that goes into huh. this and I mean, I definitely believe that. Pe obviously, it's a people are better at it fundamentally, but sure. I don't know, it's just an interesting. Um, when um, so when I, we, we don't, we I guess we never we never our paths never crossed. But um, uh, someone basically had posted about uh, your feature Dreamcatcher uh, was was uh, had a sales agent at Berlin or sold some at some at Berlin. And so the reason I was in particularly interested in having you on is I have this ongoing thing about directors from Evansville, just because um, there aren't any. They, they, uh, and I mean, I don't know if you know of any, but I mean, like all I've got are like um, Bud Bedecker uh, was not from here much like yourself, but he spent his, his childhood in Evansville. But beyond that, there's this guy named Russell Harbaugh that uh, directed a movie. Uh, he's like a few years behind me. And technically, you want to count Michael Rosenbaum, but he's Newberg. But, and even, I mean, yeah. and there's been this growth up recently of like a lot of people are locally making a lot of features around here, but people that have gone out and made, you know, bigger budget movies or stuff out of Hollywood, you're one of the only ones I, I, I didn't know you were out there. I mean, I knew, I think I knew someone mentioned that someone that's at Marvel from that used to go to Showplace, but that was about it. Sure. Yeah, yeah it's, 
well, also James Gunn. Uh, James Gunn's from St. Louis, but he and Michael Rosenbaum were best friends. And James actually would come to Newburgh quite often uh, and make projects with, you know, they, they've been friends since like their high school years. Um, but James identifies like he knows all the places I, when we were doing Guardians, like I remember talking to him about Newburgh and Evansville and, um, and yeah, but while he was from St. Louis, uh, he, he had a friendship with Michael and they did stuff in um, Evansville as well. When was that period? Do you know? Ooh, that would have been probably the eighties, maybe early nineties, but, but it was, it was a while back because they both came out here, I think around the same time, like James Gunn got more involved with like the trauma movies and doing kind of like parody pulp stuff. And then obviously his, his stuff evolved into doing stuff like Slither. Um, and Michael got Smallville. So, um, but that's why, like, if you ever, like James, he, he puts these people, I, I love that, like these people that have built relationships with people that they've come up with, um, will always use them in, in projects like that. That level of loyalty, I think is really cool and, and powerful. Okay. What were your first jobs like when you got out of film school? <laughs> well, I had a I had a very um, fortunate experience that a lot of people do not have, and I um, have tried never to take that for granted. But my first job was at Marvel. Um, I, your first I my job, first, like after film school, like the day after graduation, I started on the first Captain America movie, um, and I had been interning in animation. Um, I wanted to be in research and development, but, but somehow my resume had landed on the head of animation's desk and they called me in and I, and, you know, I wasn't super interested in animation, but I, I learned a whole bunch, but I also was there at the studio, um, and they were prepping to shoot Thor, uh, and they were building Asgard and like the sound stages. And, um, you know, I had access <laughs> Like me as a 19 year old, like, what can I, how can I reach out? To, like I've got, I'm so close. I can like feel it. How do I get there? And uh, I found a crew list. Um, and I just started emailing mistake, learn the hierarchy of departments way better. But like I started emailing people and I e ended up emailing one of the supervising art directors um, and he put me in contact with this guy who was the art department coordinator who really took me under his wing, brought me on set, introduced me to Bo Welch, who is one okay. of the biggest production designers of like, and, and it was just all these moments that were just like, this is so crazy that, that I'm here. Um, and then on Captain America, getting to work with Rick Heinrich, who again was a big production design idol of mine. Um, but through the art department coordinator, I also became cognizant of some of the production staff. And there was a, uh, one of the executive, one of the SVPs of development and production at Marvel was this guy, Jeremy, um, who was really good friends with my animation supervisor. And uh, they had like come up together and he was from North, he had gone to Northwestern. So he knew about like the Midwest and we sat down on my exit interview, me and Jeremy, and he was like, you're really refreshing. Like, I love that you don't want to be a producer. He's like some, so many, and he was like 28. He had been Kevin Feige's assistant. And then when Kevin got bumped to being the president of Marvel Studios when it was created, he brought Jeremy up and said, now, you know, he was producing Iron Man 2 at 27, 28 years old. Okay. Um, so he respected that drive, you know, that kind of like, yeah, this is what you want to do. Uh, but at the time, I was like, yeah, I think I really want to be a production designer. Um, 
And he was like, there is a clear path to that. Like, and I can help you get there. Uh, and, and like two days later he called and he was like, I think we have a job for you. Um, we're starting a new department that's going to be Marvel Studios specific. That's going to conceptualize and, and create these worlds in these sh- and to basically be the glue of the shared universe that they were aiming to create. Okay. Um, and it was three of us when I first started and I was an assistant, but, but I was getting to work from development before there was a director, before there was a script, all the way through production, all the way into post on these films and really seeing how they came together, which really showed me, no, you do need to focus on writing and directing. Like that's where your passion is. Um, but knowing that everything starts in art, like keyframes, character design, storyboards, like learning all of that and the importance of those elements, um, was, was so relatable and translatable. But like I said, that was my first job and I was there for almost seven years and I did 20 movies with them. Um, over the course of that, that time. Um, and then I reached kind of a level where after infinity war that it was like, it was, it's also such a young company. I mean, Kevin's only in his forties, right. And, and all of the SVPs are really young. Um, I could be there for another 15, 20 years and, and may not get and like my path there was to become a produce like an SVP of production. And I think by then everybody knew what I wanted to do. So okay. it was also kind of like, you're going to write and direct. You're going to stay here and keep working on the production. So, you know, at, at that point I, I had gotten a producer title, but I, I was not being as fulfilled and, and I felt kind of trapped, but I also felt safe because that had been my entire twenties. Um, and, and so I, you know, we, I left, um, and uh, I, I was focusing on short films and music videos for a while to just build a reel of material. And then um, I ran development for a horror production company called Crypt for a while, for about a year and a half. Okay. Just, uh, and they were a subsidiary, like Jason Blum and uh, UCP, the Universal Production Company, like had financed. And their model was to basically find filmmakers and, and to create short form horror content that then could be developed into films and television shows that we could set up and sell, um, to various, you know, platforms. Uh, but uh, that was another thing, like for a year and a half, when I was running development there, it was like, I'm helping all these other people tell their stories and like not really doing it myself. That does seem like a commonality. My thing with, I remember my feeling in LA always was that it's a town of talented people. And probably if you ask them, every single person wants to direct, maybe write and direct. And like, obviously not, that's not going to happen, but it still means the, the town was full of talented, passionate people that just didn't get their chance. And so a lot of times like they're in your position where they're watching someone else do what you want to do. And that's absolutely, it, it was crazy frustrating. It, it's also, though, I think very important to just shut up and listen, though, sometimes. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful. Like, I, I am aware of where my, I think, um, ambition got the best of me, where I would get impatient or I would get frustrated. But, uh, you know, looking back, I'm just very grateful. But I wish sometimes maybe there were moments where I could have not been so precocious was this like um, the, i mean the marvel time or uh, yeah. just in general i yeah. we, we skated over this marvel stuff the marvel stuff which is is kind of amazing just like like i'm a big fan of the, of the movies like i'm a bit like i find um 
a lot of the critiques of Marvel's filmmaking to be really cheap. Um, if you if you'll indulge me, I want to go down the, this quick uh, quicksand hole. Um, quicksand hole. Um, when Scorsese made the comments about Marvel, like there was there were so many things that pissed me off about the comments, in particular just because he and when he did the essay, he cited like Hitchcock and Sam Fuller and all these movies that got trashed, but. You know, his main argument seemed to be that there's no auteur behind it. And my counter argument, especially in the era of peak TV, is that these are producer uh, f- field movies. They aren't, I mean, the directors do bring a lot of stuff to them, obviously, but like there's the unification, like the glue that you were talking about, like that's, I mean, these are stories writ large over 22, you know, features. And, and, and I always thought and there's this old book called uh, How to Draw the Marvel Way that it was about the Marvel house yeah. style with Sal Bacima drawing stuff like that. And that, that yeah. I mean, the filmmaking is interesting and different, but the like the things that unified seem stuff in house styles like that. And I guess you're one of the people that was on the ground floor doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was not drawing or anything, but I was on the you know producing side of it. But but yes, and I think that like. I think the comments are tough because I also remember when I was there and everybody's like, there's going to be saturation and comic book saturation is going to happen and people are going to stop going to the theater and they're going to get annoyed and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if it taught us anything, the first Thor movie made $360 million. Infinity War made two point whatever billion dollars. Like, you know, they're, they're, it, if anything, it's grown because it's showing, I think that if you can create compelling character narratives that are couched inside something exciting and marketable, then your audience is going to come back because they want to go on a journey. It's the same reason people binge watch shows. You know, yeah. the Marvel movies became these binge worthy films that effortlessly became connected. And, and sure, there's a lot of contrived connective tissue, but that's anything like that's storytelling. Right. And like, I, I think that the brilliance behind it and, and seeing it come together is seeing and sitting in a room when you've got, five four producers and and a director and a costume designer like all of these department heads and and they're all just talking and finding what is the best idea you know it is is it a movie made by a committee sure but all movies are in in a sense and i think that the directors do have a lot more say than i think the public realizes like i i think that you you know you hire these people sure you need someone that is mildly malleable that's going to listen and not come in and be like, fuck off. Like, I'm not going to listen to what you're saying because I, Kevin and, and Lou and Victoria and all the, the executives there, like they've built a reputation on knowing what they're doing. Well, and, and, and it's like, you know, the stories you hear about David Fincher with like his uh, attitude on set where he's very aggressive and, and, but it's because he can do your job. Like he knows lighting, he knows grip, he knows all of these things. Like, he can do these jobs. So if it's a matter of someone being lazy and not delivering, like, listen, you know, this is an opportunity to listen and learn something. Well, it just seems like the unique thing with Marvel uh, to me seems to be that one, like, if you make a, uh, you can, this, the common thing of making a movie by committee is supposedly a bad thing. Like it's, the problem isn't that it's people coming together to make the movie. It's that you don't want to do the lowest common denominator or you don't want to be, risk adverse like if you have a common goal to try something interesting and you guys and people are honest about their reactions to it making a movie by committee movies are collaboration is actually works out a little better and the other thing with particularly with feige is that it just seems like 
um, the, you guys are on, or Marvel was on a, such a big streak, but like it's also like whenever like there's that connective tissue in other movies developing franchise, it's one thing to do that, and it seems like it's obvious that it's doing, it, but you're going to have an executive turnover at these other places that where that stuff's going to be abandoned. And it was just like this tedious thing you had to watch that never paid off versus like you get Marvel at that time could develop a, um, a, st a style of movie and occasionally challenge themselves with something different. But like they were still like, there was a unified form to it, to, to a bunch of, it, it just, I mean, obviously we've never really seen anything like that except maybe close to Disney and the early eras of that. But even that, and it's, it's, yeah, I, I think like learning that stuff is invaluable too, and, and being able to appreciate it, you know, like that, um, the, the foresight to create war, it's, it's, I personally feel like that's what's missing with the Star Wars stuff where it didn't feel like there was foresight into what is the bigger picture. And it, at the end of the day, like, I, I do remember the early day, and I don't know what's in Kevin's head or, any of the like but like i saw his ideas were thought of on the spot that ended up being implemented into things that were they're like man they must have been thinking about that for 15 years and it was like eh, just a really good idea that kind of came together but you know like i said the foundational elements of that story and those storytelling pieces that needed to come together were there and that comes from the brilliance of of minds that know how to just go why don't we try this? Why don't we be bold? Why don't we, you know, like, and I think that's where Marvel will hopefully continue to surprise people, you know? Um, and, and yeah, well, I mean, the, the reason that a lot of movies look, they use the same crews. The loyalty of Marvel studios is incredible. Um, if you are a department head there, if you are a, even a production assistant there uh, and you do a great job, they're going to keep, you know, we called it permalance, basically, where they just kept bringing these people back. And it was so it was it was like a family that kept growing, you know, when, when I first started and it was like, OK, we're doing two movies a year like that's that's crazy. You know, we're going to do wow. And then after the success of Avengers, which it was constantly one of these things, it was just like, is it going to work? Um, you know, every meeting we would have every conversation it was like, can this work? And even the actors were you know, you, you can read old articles from them where they were like, yeah, we'd sit around and be like, what are we doing? Like, this is kind of silly. Um, but the success of that, I think, showcased and validated that idea that's like, we can do. And then it became, well, let's do three movies. And then it was like, well, let's do four. <laughs> you know, as the slate began to grow, um, you know, sometimes we'd be in development on on this stuff for like two years. You know, you'd be you'd be working on a movie for 25 months that doesn't what, come out so what was a uh, average day like at marvel um usually when I, well, when I first started i was so nervous about because i was an assistant i would like get in at like 30 in the morning to like prep meetings and like get things ready and you know get coffees and i i was i was like a stereotypical like skittish i can't lose this opportunity and uh but, you know, as the, as it progressed, it was honestly the beginning was a lot of research, like finding old issues, finding old storylines, finding great visual references from old comics, finding other references. What, what has been done before? 
um, with monsters, with aliens, with robots, with like what have we actually seen? So we don't try to just emulate or recreate that. So were you basically like an Easter egg department? Because, I mean, one of, <laughs> one of the things that's always, as a comic fan, I've always appreciated about the Marvel stuff is old ad- comic adaptations, what they would, like, they just disregard everything. It's like, let's make a Batman, a new Batman love interest, Vicky Bale, or something like that. And then, yes. you know, and there's, and like Feige always says, there's a wealth of stuff in the comics. And you guys, what's always cool with you guys is you when you, you change stuff organically. And, like, and then there's always this, like, nod to, like, yeah, but we've read the comics. Or we know what the comic storyline is. Like, we, we named this character this way just because, like, it's a nod towards that, that we actually know the source material. So, I mean, was that, like, was that your work? There, yes. And in a lot of ways, like, for sure. Um, a great example of this, when we were doing Age of Ultron, uh, and we knew Vision was going to be, was in it. Um, for the for the longest time, they were so nervous about like he's got to be human, like he or not like human, but he needs to look like a human. And so all of the early passes of what Vision looked like were kind of like either marble esque or like beige and white. Like he was very human, and and like he wasn't red and green are aggressive colors. Yeah. And in the comics, it works because you're like, cool, there's a girl with like a crown on her head and a cape. And like there's but in the movie that feels moderately grounded to throw a man who is red and green in an odd patching way can be hard. And uh, we brought in a version but my my old bosses, I'm Ryan, who's who is still the head of visual. He's one of the most incredible artists I've ever met and just like just willing to just be like let's try this and he and he would use what you would say like from old issue like remember in this you know version of this ditko comic when they introduced this small design element how do we translate that into a costume that feels practical um but but we started presenting these designs to joss and and ryan goes and then i did one that's more ver you know like more like the comic and uh, Kevin came in and Victoria, like everybody started coming in and seeing this image. And it was like, he's got, he's got to be that. Like he has to be green and red. Like that's so cool. Um, yeah, and it was all, you nailed it. it's, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I, I, when I first started reading Avengers, he was in the white, the white, kind of completely white part. But I mean, I just, it's weird just because it feels, it's, it's such a tricky line. I, like I remember in the first Raimi Spider-Man, they'd have those like long scenes between Green Goblin and Spider-Man where um, it's just two inanimate masks talking to each other with no expression. And clearly that's yep. something that had to evolve over the years because it works on a flat image, a flat still yep. image, but not talking. But you got, it's one of those things Marvel does so well. And Kevin was so cognizant about that because he was on Spider. You know, he, he was uh, – uh, Laura Schuler Donner's like right hand when she was producing those films, um, when like Avi Arad was still involved in, you know, whatever. But um, he would always say if, if there was ever a design presented or an idea presented in the script, he was like, he would always reference the scene of Spider-Man and the Green Goblin on the roof. That's the one I'm when talking Green about. Goblin's yeah. trying to convince him to be a bad guy. And he's like, it's two people, blah, 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 blah. And he was like, they tried to by opening the eyepieces on the Green Goblin. He's like, but you can't see his mouth. And he's like, so the, the problem became there's no emotion. Like you don't feel anything. So anything that like, and a lot of the characters from the comic books have 
designs like that. Because like you said, on a 2D image, you don't need to feel the emotion. You can read the words and feel what it is, but uh, it, uh, it... Or you have that, like Ditko uh, things so where like Ditko can like make Spider-Man's eyes look very emotive, even if they're very similar or something like that. But uh, yep. Or Rorschach's fa- face in Watchmen and stuff like that, but obviously that's not... That was not, that, not a working challenge for you guys. It's, it seems like something you have to be cognizant of like just still masks aren't going to do it and motion pictures and it's when we were doing spider-man when that whole deal happened and and we were able to use spider-man um it was ryan's idea of how to actually use he was like his he was like well they you know if we go with the idea that peter parker is a photographer he would have just taken a camera aperture and created he would have taken science goggles and put camera apertures in them that would allow the eyes to move to different sizes. That's And that would be in the homemade suit, right? When he had just made the one with like the hoodie and the pullover hat. And then what then Tony Stark could translate that to is, well, okay, you've got mechanized pieces now that work like camera apertures that go to different sizes. That's so um, cool. Can you give me some other examples, like, like Black Panther or somebody else? Oh, yeah. Uh, with Black Panther, when we were doing that, that's another design that in the comic books – um, in, in all reality, it's an all black costume, right? But, uh, in, in the way that he was drawn, they would use purple as a way to differentiate the shadows in the costume, right? So when Ryan was like, what, what if vibranium gave a purple shimmer when you get light on it? So then when the suit is actually hit with light, you'd get purple breakup on the costume. So it doesn't just feel like a flat black surface. And it was something that, Again, because the mask is is so flat, they were like, well, it's got to open at the bottom or it's got to open the eye. Like pieces of it have to be able to break apart. Um, And that was also another challenge because after you did Iron Man with a mask that could kind of just go back and forth when you had uh, Star-Lord and we knew we had to have a mask, it was like, okay, well, then what's the mechanism on that? Well, it'll be an earpiece. As they continue to design these masks, what is going to be the mechanism that allows it to move or open that is not just like Iron Man, right? It can't just be a faceplate that goes, uh, which becomes really challenging, you know? Like, And that's why I think Black Panthers is cool because it kind of breaks up. But in the first movie, it was more practical where it would like, he could take it off before it became more um, sci-fi-y where he could just kind of put it on. Um, but, but yeah, using the purple as a way to differentiate shadows was something that was brought up. Uh, the, I don't know if I can, I think I can, I don't know if I can say this, maybe I can, but the original idea for Vulture, uh, the wingsuit was going to be that, that he was in the battalion with Sam Falcon, okay, like military. And he was called Vulture because he was the medic. So he was always around the dead bot. Like whenever he would show up, it would be like, well, it's cause we got somebody dead or injured. Um, and then he sees that Falcon has become this like superhero and he still has kind of like an old version of the wingsuit and he clues it and fixes it. It makes this, you know, wings. It, it became very Incredibles where it's like, oh, this person's getting all the credit and this person's the superhero. And I'm and and I think that one of the, you know, all of the early pitches for the first Spider for Spider-Man Homecoming were it was um, Vulture and Mysterio. Like every writer that came in were like, these are the villains that I think um, because they're kind of low level and and i think vulture works so well because he's like a blue collar like and and you know if you go the what john watts wanted he was like i want it to be a john hughes movie with a superhero 
you need a bad guy who doesn't have to have a huge backstory. Um, and Vulture filled that pretty well. I remember there was that vibe where it was like um, Batman Begins, where it was just like, these are the villains we haven't gotten to yet. So, like, you know, Rachel Ghoul and um, um, Scarecrow, it's like, yeah, they were if, if the, if the Burden Schumacher series is continued, they were going to probably eventually get to them. But now when someone else is starting, these are the villains they're going to take over. And then, yeah, I don't know if that, what that means for. Um, so. You, you say there's no um, map out stuff, but like, well, there there is now. Now it's like it's so mapped out to this. But like in the early days when we were doing Captain America one and Avenger, like the like that, I would say there were small stepping stones, but it wasn't the way that it is now, where it is so heavily, you know, and the the, the company has grown now. There's more executives. Like it's a bigger thing because now they've got the Disney Plus shows and like it's and you've you know, all of these things have to exist within one world. So, so now there's, you know, you got to plan four or five years in advance. I just watched um, uh, first Avengers last week and I probably haven't seen it maybe since it came out. Whereas like uh, uh winter soldier and civil war, I watched, I've watched a bunch of times over and over. And man, I don't know if it's just like, cause all the payoffs and in game, but like first Avengers was way better than I remember. Like it was really it, like, like, yeah, I don't know if, if it was just a better script than I remembered, or uh, and just all the things like I things at the time I was I I didn't love as much. Now I've fallen in love with again, or but it would yeah it it was I mean that is a great trilogy of films. It's a good and that was a story that like even the first one evolved. I would say more than the second, but the first movie evolved so much from when it was like pitched. Um, there was like an additional villain and like there it was just a way bigger movie. And I think what was great about it was it is kind of a pared down story at the end of the day. Like I think it works so much better because it's so much about the Avengers. It's about them and you get the big global thread at the end, but like it still feels like for most of the movie, it's about them and not things just happening to them, but them happening to each other. Oh, no, no. And... I meant Captain America, the first Avengers. Oh, 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 oh. I go, because no, yeah. oh, the Whedon movie I loved, Death. That was, like, I, I mean, that's, yeah, but I mean, like, uh, I don't know. First I, Avenger. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Joe Johnston is, is like, he's he's, pretty, he's, he's great. He's, he's, I, I just, I, I love Rocketeer, but, like, I, I mean, the level of directors you guys are getting later, just, you, and, but, I mean, no, the movie was held up way better than I remembered. Yeah. yeah. And Joe Joe brings that, like, Captain America feels like the Rocketeer or Jumanji. Like, it feels like an old 90s action movie. Okay. Um, it's not as sophisticated, I don't think, as, as, you know, Civil War. But it's totally different. Like, he made a really cool 40s feeling film. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and... Yeah, but but I think yeah they do hold up better, and I think you know Winter Soldier is still one of the best story wise. Like it, it's just I don't know. It will always hold a, a good place in my my uh, my brain. So on the side, were you uh, were you working on scripts, and were you still doing some like um, production design shorts shorts for, or how was this working? I I stopped doing production design maybe a year after I worked at Marvel. I was doing it on music videos and um, a couple short films. But then I really like switched gears to doing writing shorts, directing music videos, directing sh- like I did a Kickstarter for my first big like twenty thousand dollars short, uh, Cadence back in twenty fourteen. Um, did that and then 
did a few other, you know, smaller, smaller things. Uh, and there's a lot of stop and go of like, well, let's put this project together. And like, but, you know, I was spending 12 or 14 hours plus a day on the Marvel stuff. Like it, it became very taxing. Um, but again, like if you make time for something that you're passionate about, you make time for it. So uh, I didn't really start writing features probably till like 2013, like actually sitting down to like focus on them. Um, and, but it was just because I was reading a lot more scripts. You know, I was, I think to, to understand that I was, I was trying to put my, you know, and we'd always get writer and director pitches. And this so we during the material. development time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I read a lot more and then, you know, I, then I was like, okay, well now I'll read the blacklist scripts and see what's out there. That's not getting made. That's compelling or good. And, um, and I've just started to try to hone what is like my storytelling style. So, and it's still, I think, evolving and, and changing as I, as I continue to, to learn. And um, I think that's one of the cool things I, I saw at Marvel too, was these filmmakers who would get typified into, you know, Scott Derrickson, who was, you know, notorious movies like Sinister and low, but even James Gunn to be able to, you know, John Watts, the before John Watts did Spider-Man, he had done a $750,000 indie film. Um, but cop just car. The, f- the cop car, yeah, with with Kevin Bacon. Um, but it it all just came like the, that is, I think, where people don't see like these people have to earn the job, right? Like they have to come in there, they have to pitch, they have to have a great idea, they have to have direction, they have to understand the characters, and and that's where I think that maybe well they're like, well, they're still being made by committee, but but like there's a reason that that director was chosen and they do bring something. And while it gets kind of augmented into the Marvel machine, I still think that there's certain distinct things about the films that will always be inherently tied to that director um, in a cool way. I got it. Okay. You may not be able to talk about this, but I did want to ask, did you, were you around when Edgar Wright was uh, on Ant-Man? And yeah, I, I can't really talk about it, but it was, it was a very, um, it, it was a, like, it was creative differences, but it, it was a project that had been around before even Avengers got made. Um, and Edgar was, was like, I read the first draft of that script, I think in 2011. Um, and you know, he came, it was just not the right time for Ant-Man yet. Like they had already done obscure characters with Iron Man. They needed to wait a little bit longer. Um, but you know, it, it sometimes things you know hap- uh, with Patty, um, uh, oh. who, who's on Thor two, and then went and did Wonder Woman. Um, again, creative differences happen, and uh, it, uh, yeah. So, from the development time, um, how did I mean how how did the feature get developed then? From from your job, did you quit and then uh, go straight into I want to write director so I knew these well, with Dreamcatcher specifically I well from the shorts and stuff I was able to actually get like manager and agent and all of, like I was able to actually start building the tools that I needed to be able to get out there more and not just be the Marvel guy because that's the other thing about Hollywood is people like to put you in the like oh so you work at Marvel so that's what you do sure. like you're, you're a development guy at Marvel like that's you needed to break perception because optics became everything um cool, you made a short film, cool, you directed a music, like, what What are you going to do next? So uh, I had met these producers back in a barbecue in, like, 2014. We had put together a project that was, like, a $3 million 
thing. Uh, the financing ended up falling through, but I stayed in contact with them uh, because we had similar sensibilities. And they were finishing up a movie with Wes Craven called The Girl in the Photographs, 2014. It was the last movie he did uh, as a producer before he passed away. Um, and it was written by Oz Perkins, who's Anthony Perkins' son. Um, oh, I just saw um, his uh, Gretel and Hansel or whatever. How was it? It was well shot. I heard it's beautiful. Yeah, it's. No, I mean, he's gonna. He's definitely got a career ahead of him. There's some really interesting stuff in it. Uh, are Are you still? Do you ever talk to Aaron Smith anymore? Eric Smith. A- Aaron Smith from Showplace. Oh yeah, no, probably not in years. He recommend highly recommended it to me. It's. Did you ever see the Black Coat's daughter? No, I remember. I, I saw the. I saw the. Looked at his credits, and I knew I recognized the, the name, but. It was called February, I think, but it sold at Sundance for like $8 million. It was a huge sale, and then like it never really took off. Um, uh, I digress. What was I talking Oh, producers. And then like out of the blue, after I left Crypt um, and was just really freelancing, doing development Bibles and just sell, you know, setting up certain, you know, trying to sell shit, uh, they reached out and they were like, hey, we have money. We have a very loose idea of a story, and we have to shoot in January. And it was like October. Okay. Um, so I wrote the first draft of Dreamcatcher in about 10 days. Uh, How long was your prep? And, uh, we started formal prep November. I, I finished a draft that I liked by like November 9th, 8th, 9th. And I started storyboarding. We went into casting. Um and, you know, you, you when you know the budget, you can kind of write around. And we knew certain things, like the, one of the producers had this beautiful mansion in the hills that they that they lived in. So we were able to use that as one of the set pieces. Uh, one of the other major set pieces is at a, as a huge music festival. Um, so, you know, there, anyway, uh, we had about oh, four weeks of formal prep, but... In Hollywood, everything shuts down the last two weeks of December. Sure. So we were trying to close actor deals and do all like get a lot of the location permits and everything set up so at the top of January we could be good to go. Um, it is a great time to shoot a movie because a lot of TV shows don't come back from hiatus until the end of January. So a lot of actors who you wouldn't be able to get otherwise or may not do it for the budget we had, uh, we were able to you know hey do you either want to get paid and work for three weeks would and, you know, it's younger people, so that's already helpful, too. Um, and we had, a, we had a pretty good reception to the script, so it was a really cool process. And it, But it really did come together extremely fast, because very rarely do you have money. Usually, you know, they're like, well, we got to get the cast, and then the cast dictates the budget, right. and the blah, blah, blah. But, like, this was, we've got the money, we got to go make the movie, and this is the window of time in which we have to shoot it for certain reasons. So uh, that's what we did. Well, I did want to ask you about um, one of the things that has gotten me away from L.A. and rare to, like, come back was just the general hustling aspect, too, especially if you wanted to write and direct stuff. Like, the hustling seemed exhausting after a certain point. And I just had a lot of friends that were just hitting brick walls with it. I mean, how do you feel about that? Uh, you're absolutely right. There is there is a hustle always. Um, I think if I had not been so invested in wanting to do this since I was a kid then maybe my drive would have diminished but I feel like everything that I've done I've always felt that 
I haven't gotten to the success or place that I wanted to get yet. It used to always be, well, if I sell a script, well, if you did that, then you got, well, I want to direct a feature. Okay. Well, you did like, it's, I, I constantly put some sort of expectation on myself to keep the drive inspired. And like, I have days when I'm not feeling great about it, but at the end of the day, I go right back to hustle mode and just think like, yeah, but you know, it, when I get on set, when I, when I set something up, when I start working with actors, when I start working with, with producers and department heads, like it all feels worth it. So you just um, remind yourself of, of the actual filmmaking goal itself. Yeah. And, and it's like the difference between a lot of the people that, that the, the longer that you are here, because I think there's a daunting facade of, well, there's so much competition. Everybody has a script. Everybody wants to write. Everybody wants to act. Everybody wants to direct. So-and-so's mom is, you know, Barbara Hershey's ex-agent. Like, everybody knows somebody who's doing something. And, like, but no matter where you are, there's going to always be someone better looking, better connected, more financially stable, like, whatever field you're in. And the reality of the people who are doing versus dreaming out here is massive like there is a huge disparity between the people who are like well i'm an actor and it's like okay well what are you are you going to classes are you are you you know are you going on like no but like i'm really hoping that i can save some money and like go to a class and it's like let's you know if you're not writing then you're not a writer if you're not actually trying to do or actively pursuing these things then you're just being complacent yeah and it is a it is a city that breeds complacency because a lot of people get so burnt out because they're not getting, you know, the goal is, is, is hard. Um, well, you just but your, I don't know what the solution is. You put your finger on something and just, it's been, I, I, sh I just wish I'd been shooting more all these years. Just, and I'm not, and I mean, not, I, I lamented the whole, like, I, especially as technology's got easier, like, like, I think stuff you shoot on lower cons uh, prosumer stuff looks, great especially if you compare it to what like good stuff like uh, your phone shoots better than a viper did in 2006 or something like that and just yeah. and even then like just i just i want to be i should be shooting more i, I just kind of i don't know you, you put your finger on the do with the doing thing that's kind of a haunting thing for um do you <laughs> yeah um do you uh but, do you... but there's there's never like there's never a wrong time though you know like if, if you get inspired to do something you can still jump back into it you know and I, I think that it's it can be hard when you start getting the responsibilities and the reality of being an adult because those things suck like rent and family and like bills but at the end of the day like also something you you made a good point is like yeah you could make a movie on your phone steven soderbergh just made one like but also, don't be disillusioned by that notion. Like, it's still hard to make a movie. It's still hard to write a good story. Like, you could go outside and shoot hummingbirds flying around and call that a movie. But is it going to do anything for you? Is it going to actually give you that scratch the thing that you're missing? Well, probably not. Like, right now, what I'm thinking about is less about the making of something versus um, I'm trying to convince myself that I... The way one of my friends always was phrased it uh, was that the bullseye is getting smaller for, uh, say, you make a small feature, like a $200,000 feature, something like that, and disregarding the whole, all the hustling you have to get to get that, and that weird thing where, like, it's easier to get $2 million than it is to get $200,000, which, you know, 
But then, like, what's your pathway? You you have to get get to a big festival and then sell at a big festival or get sold to the streamers and hope that they put some money behind it. Or I know Paul Schrader said that, like, the, the gatekeepers or the tastemakers pick, like, five movies a year that are going to maybe kind of come up from nowhere that that are – you know, maybe going to be in contention at the end of the year, known about, and and even then, because a lot of my friends are making movies, and then they they, they the hustles for the second movie is just as hard. Like that's that's the weird thing I've, I've noticed. Yeah, it's also it's also about momentum and and relevance. Like a lot of people don't care about your movie until it's done, and then they only care about it for a very small window of time. And if you can't capitalize on that, like you're done. Until you find the next big opportunity to like shock them and be like, oh, you came up from the, you know, you were buried and you came up and you did it again. Like it's, it's never easy. And, and, and even actors, like I, these huge actors sometimes don't get the offers that I think a lot of people anticipate that they do. Like, why is, you know, why are they not just in movies all the time? And it's like, well, they're not, they're not getting the offers you think, um, no matter how talented you get, it goes back to, you know, you're only, you're only as important as you can be for a certain amount of time um, in the public eye. But, but if you can't stay inspired on your own merits and your own, you know, goals and ambition, then it's, it's an impossible industry to succeed in. Right. Because you're constantly just going to be like, Oh, I'm let down again. I'm let down again. And, and that, and that does, it hurts and it sucks, but it's like, if you can, navigate around that and use that to hopefully propel you into something unexpected which is i think nine times out of ten how anything happens in this town like there's it it, when timing timing is everything and not just in a hyperbolic way like i've seen executives read a script on a tuesday and pass and then on friday the assistant goes did you give it a read and they're like no i'll read it over the weekend and on monday they're like it's one of the best things i've ever read and it's like the, the the mentality of if you catch somebody on a bad day, if you catch somebody when they've had their they haven't had their coffee, like if they watch the screener of your movie in a bad mood, or they're they're going through a fight with some, like it can throw everything off, you know. But if the timing is right and you get the person at, at in a good mood who's looking to make a decision that day, it happens, you know. But but that's just the reality of unfortunately how it how it goes and it sucks and. You, There's no way to predict it. Do you have your uh, um, you said your next feature lined up? Yeah, it looks like we're going to be doing another another project in in um, July, uh, August. That hopefully in the next like month we'll be able to make an announcement about um, bigger budget and and. Uh, you know, there's a couple big things on the horizon that that I'm I'm fighting very hard for. One of those is Animorphs. Um, uh, as as I, I, I pitched it as a as a trilogy to the company who's getting the rights it's been a year-long thing but like it's it's something that i want so bad and it, it's like constantly i'm just like how's what's going on with this but um hoping that that pans out in a meaningful way because that would be a, a dream project for i guess me. i'm unfamiliar with animorphs they were they were a book series um in the 90s that that were like with when goosebumps were popular uh and all of the they were probably most notable for their covers and they were like somebody like in an action pose and then they like they were turning into an animal um and in the bottom corner of the book there was like a flip uh thing that would as you turn the pages they would turn into an animal um but it's like kind of sci-fi kind of john john husey but like super dark but 
really diverse and interesting and, and, and it would be really cool. So we'll see what happens. Did you, um, do you ever come back to, um, Evansville or Newburgh or Henderson? Uh, I, I did actually for the first, I had not been back in six years. I came back in October of last year. Where's your family? Um, uh, my mom's in Henderson or I'm sorry. Now she's in Madisonville, uh, which is like 30 minutes South of, of Henderson. But I, a lot of the people I went to high school with that I wanted to see, like we spent a lot of time at like timeout lounge and like, um, uh, just like a lot of random bars and, and things. But yeah, I, and I went back in, into my high school and said hello to the teachers that really inspired me. And, um, and, but what I want to do actually, to, to be honest is I wanted to do a, I want to do a premiere of Dreamcatcher at Showplace East. Um, and I haven't reached out to, to Debbie or to anybody about they, arranging. But, they would be do- uh, totally down for it. I know I spoke to some, um, one of the, uh, I've been speaking to a lot of Evansville filmmakers and they, they said, uh, Mick in particular, Mick was the guest on last, last week's episode, but Mick in particular okay. is very, very open to showing stuff, especially, uh, t- this time of year too, like in the summers, but they've rebranded Showplace South back into an art house theater again. But yeah, that's, oh, totally, wow, that's so cool. That's totally doable. Yeah, I, I wanted to, and I know I could get 200 people to, to come and, and um, you know, make it a big thing. And, and honestly, like, I'd love to maybe even try to pose it as like a fundraiser of some sort to help uh, like an art community, you know, like up and coming like a drama club or I don't know, like something that you could actually give back to the community um, and, and make it about celebrating art and really convincing people that like you can go out and chase after the things that you want. And like, it's not just a fever dream. Um, my guidance counselor in high school, when I wanted her to send my transcripts to USC, she was like, yeah, but like, maybe you should just keep your dreams grounded in Kentucky. And it was, and I had good grades. Like it wasn't like I was some D like straight D kid that was like going to get rich. You know, it was, it was so upsetting to me. Um, that that was the mentality, you know, like you, you'll be fine here. Like just stay where the, where the water is warm. Um, Whoa. and so I think being able to, to tell people that, and, um, that's why I was really excited to, to be able you know, to talk to you and, and come on the show because it's like people, you never know who's going to hear that one line or that one moment or that one question that's going to just go, I'm triggered and I'm excited and I'm inspired and I can go do that. Well, okay. And I wish that when I was in high school, somebody would have been able to do that for me. You yeah. know, like somebody would have come in and said, you know, I'm, I'm doing it. Maybe I'm not, you know, Johnny Depp or I'm not David Fincher, but I'm doing something and you can do something too. And, and, and everybody's capable of doing something great. Well, I mean, there's, it's particularly like you doing well in LA. Like it's, first off, when you came back to high school, what were, or, or came back to um, town and you hung out with some high school friends, what were their reactions to your like uh, LA stories? Or just or you are working in, in in movie stories. It's it's um it's always tough to be perfectly honest because I never want to come across pretentious and I never want to come across like oh this is the kid who left the small town and then canoodled with you know so, uh, whatever the mindset or the facade might seem. I I was so cognizant and I never wanted to be that. So when you're trying to like tell stories about whatever it, you never want to be like the name dropper or like the thing. And I don't know. So it's, it's actually sometimes kind of tough. It's almost more fun to just not talk about the Hollywood side of it and just talk about like life 
stuff, you know, like friends and relationships and, and life. Like, are you happy? Are you, you know, pursuing, are you still happy pursuing the thing that you went out there to do? Um, Hey, you made a movie that I had not made the movie. or I, I don't think I talked about really the movie when I was back before. Um, when I came back in 2014, they had asked me to talk to like juniors and seniors, like the, 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 the class to just be like, Hey kids, like I'm an alum. I'm at Marvel. Go do your chase your dreams. Um, and that was really cool. Like to me, that was like, that's, you know, being able to identify, have, answer questions because they're fascinated by that stuff. Like what is the process of this? Like, how does this get made? What is, you know, real versus what's practical effects and, and CG? Like, I don't know. There, there was just a, there's an inquisitive nature to, to that age group, you know, 16 to 18, where things still excite them. And I think as you get older, it's like being an adult and like the reality of life happens. And so coming back, I don't know, like, yeah, it's, it's long story short. It's just harder because I don't want to come across like an asshole. Sure. Um, and, you know, I haven't been around for my, my mindset, like what's going is like through Facebook or Instagram, you know? So like, I, I don't want to create some false sense of like, Oh, we're still friends. Like we're still as close as we were in 2004. Um, because you've gone on and gotten married and had children and, and had this amazing life. And like, I don't want to seem fake. You know, I don't know. So it's, sorry. That's, it's, no, it's a tough, no. my favorite it's a is, tough world. I have, Whenever I have a, I find myself name dropping, like my favorite is when the just recognition does not come there, and you're just like you're a you're an asshole two times over. Like it's, yeah, funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you also yeah. punch. Who's that? Yeah, yeah, I get that a lot. Um, but you you pointed you touched on something. Is there something unique about this area that makes people afraid to go out to L.A.? Because it took I, it took years before I finally got to L.A. And I kept having to trial places. I went to Louisville first, and I went to Austin for a few years. And um, or is it just a hometown thing? Is a certain a town of a certain size uh, people don't have an economic model of going to another town and and making that cost of living work? Um, I maybe both. Like I. I, I think if I had grown up in one town, it might have been a little different. Like, I think that's where moving around when I was younger helped because I never felt completely rooted somewhere. My life was not rooted in a town, in a memory, in a in a idea of somewhere. Um, I think that there's also it's the same thing about people out here, though, that get complacent. Like, it's easy to get complacent when things you get into the groove of something. And I think places like Evansville are are nice towns with good people. And there's opportunity, uh, maybe not the opportunity you'd want in a dream job, but there is opportunity. Um, it's relatively safe. And like, I don't know, like there's 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 certain things it's like what's wrong with it? Like if, if, you know, and I, when I first got out here, I admittedly did resent like, Oh, you wanted to get married. Oh, you're pregnant at 19. Good for you. But like some people want that, you know, some people wanted like they're they're the way that I wanted to make films. They wanted to have a family and they wanted to buy a house and they wanted to do this. And it's like, why it's not my place to judge what your dream or your goals are or how they've changed as you've gotten older. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's what we're taught, but also like, I think, um, 
and and maybe it's also about inspiration like it's hard to sometimes be inspired for for things that are artistic in a town that is not predicated on art yeah. you know I, I i know that that the uh, um the university of evansville has actually got a great theater department you know a lot of great actors have come out of that but like uh are people talking about parasite probably not like the small community of, of people might be taught but like it's not the way it is out here where everybody's like parasite this and parasite that like it's uh, i don't know i don't know what it is but i but i do think that it's important for people no matter where they are in the world to be informed and educated and, and told that it's not unruly to have a goal that seems outlandish you know, and, and as you get older and you learn a little bit of pragmatism, like, sure, that dream or goal can change or evolve. But when you're 16 or 17 years old or 15 years old or 12, no one should be telling you that you can't go out and, and make movies or you can't want to you know, be a singer or like it. We, we can't train our children and our and our generations after us that like for some reason, just because a job industry is competitive or hard, that it's not worth pursuing. Because um, otherwise, you'll get people who, who are unhappy unnecessarily. Well, I guess that for one final question, you brought this up earlier. Are you happy right now? Huh. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I think my... um. I think coming back actually showed how happy I have gotten. I think for a while I was still figuring out, like, am I happy? Because I was constantly, like I said earlier, weighing myself against myself and everyone else that are doing, you know, Sam Raimi directed a movie at 23. What was I doing at 23? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you can't do that. Like that will get you nowhere. (laughs) Um, and so when I was able to let go and, and start to focus on like the things that are inspiring to me and, and the people around me, and, like being grateful to know the people who are doing cool shit, like and being happy for their success only allowed me to really be happy for my own success then too. You know, when it stopped becoming a competition, when it stopped becoming a woe is me, they've got the opportunity and I don't um, be, because like I said, a lot of people don't have the journey that I've had and I need to be grateful for that. And I, and I don't ever want to take anything for granted. So, so I do think, um, as now at 31, I can be more grateful and some of it is retrospective and I wish I could have celebrated it more at the time, but, but, um, it's so hard out in LA, especially like the grass is greener stuff, the competition, like all that stuff. It's, it's so, it just, it, it just seeps in so quickly. Yeah. It's in the water or something. It it is. And it's but it's everywhere because everybody that's around you, even people that are extremely successful, are still like, Yeah, but you're doing this. And it's like, Yeah, but you're doing this. And it's like, who cares? As long as we're all doing something that we're excited about, even if it's writing a script, if it's, you know, painting your fingernails, whatever it is, like do it. And if it's exciting to you, celebrate it. Okay. Um Yeah. Uh Jacob Johnson, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was this has been great.